Hope you're all well. Um, this morning's reading is, we're reading from Psalm 63. I actually preached on this one in this very place, I think two or three years ago, and it probably says something about the job I did, that John Irvine's having to come behind me now and tidy up my mess. So uh, I look forward to being uh, corrected uh, this morning. So Psalm 63, folks, my soul thirsts for you. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth, they shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for the jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. I'm just going to pray quickly before John comes this morning. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the drive in and been able to see the, the beautiful weather and the, the scenery, Father, and just be able to marvel at your creation. Father, we just thank you that we are able to come here this morning freely to worship you, to sit down together, to meet together, Father, and to, to open your word together, knowing full well, Father, that you are here with us. You, the creator of everything, Father, are right here in this room with us today, and we thank you for that. Father, I pray you'll just bless this place now. I pray you'll bless each of the rooms where there's teaching going on, from the kids right up to ourselves. And Father, I pray now you'll just settle us down the week of holiday plans or work and all the stuff that's going on, Father, I pray you'll just settle our minds and open our hearts, Father, and give John the words that you want us to hear this morning. Amen. Thanks, Pete. Morning, everyone. Uh, can I just reassure you, Pete, that that's not the case? Uh, I actually just simply forgot that you had done this one, but uh, and it was probably because you had drawn our attention to it in such a fine way that I went back to it this morning and want to look at it this morning. So yes, we are in Psalm 63 this morning in our summer series in the Psalms. Jesus says in Matthew 6, these are Jesus' words in Matthew 6, and we're not going back to the Sermon on the Mount just yet, but uh, these, are, these are Jesus' words. Matthew 6, 19 to 21. Do not, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Or to phrase that last line slightly differently, your heart follows where your treasure is. 
Your heart follows where your treasure is. You see, Psalm 63 is a demonstration for us of what David treasures. Psalm 63 is a a very overtly just out there demonstration of what King David treasured. And so I want to begin this morning as we begin our time in Psalm 63 by asking you a question, asking myself a question, posing us a question as a group. What do you treasure? Bear that question in mind as we walk through this psalm this morning. What do you treasure? Because what you treasure, your heart will follow. You see, what this... We, we need to do some work. We need to do a moment's work here on the context of this psalm to understand the, the gravity of what David is saying. We need to understand the position that he finds himself in when he writes these words. And I want you to imagine, I want you to use your imagination this morning to, to, to really grasp where David is as he writes the words of Psalm 63. David has been reigning as king over Israel. He has been reigning in Jerusalem. David has been extraordinarily blessed by God over his reign in Israel. In every way that you can think of, he has been blessed by God. The greatest king that Israel had ever known. But since, and if you have been in church and know the Bible, Maybe you don't. I'll, I'll explain a, a, a little bit maybe as we go. But, but ever since David sinned with Bathsheba, and I don't want to go into the story too much. I don't have time for that this morning. But, but basically, David uh, committed adultery with Bathsheba. There have been trials in David's life. The greatest king that ever walked the face of the planet, according to God of Israel, sins with Bathsheba, has trials in his life, and we realize that after David's sin with Bathsheba, he would lose four children. There would be many trials in David's life after that sin. Even though he was forgiven by God, though he was welcomed back into fellowship with God, though God's mercy and the joy of his salvation was returned to David, there would be many testing times in David's life. Now, let me be clear on something. That was not because of his sin with Bathsheba, but that was just life. None of us walk through this life scot-free. Not one. Not one of us walk through this life and we won't face trials. Not one. So these trials that come upon David are not directly related to that sin, in case we go there and just think, oh right, we sinned, and then all of these things happen. No, that's not the case. These things just happen to chronologically happen after that. There would be many testing times, and where David writes this psalm from is one of those testing times. One of his own children has turned against him. One of his own children has turned against him. One of his own children has, has rallied to, to himself some of the most powerful men in Israel uh, and led, a, led an insurgence against David, and David has to flee from Jerusalem. 
They're taking the kingdom of Israel from David. David has to flee Jerusalem on his own. Get out of there quickly. One of his own children has turned against him. Some of the, some of the horrifying facts of, of this situation are, for example, David's own son takes some of his concubines on the roof of the palace and has relationships with them there. Uh, horrendous things happened in David's life through this period. So David here, when he writes this psalm, is not the king on the throne. And I think the most important thing for us to remember this morning is this. The worst thing, for, in the context, I mean, the worst thing for King David is not, is not that he's in the wilderness. It's not that he has been separated from his power or his rule. It's not that the position has been taken away from him. The worst thing for King David in this moment where everything has been taken away is this, that he has been separated from the worship of God in Jerusalem. And from the temple and the praise of God that happens there. And it is there in this place of wilderness, in this place of separation, in this place of isolation, where his son is reigning in Jerusalem, David sings these words. Let me just remind you of these words, given that. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. All the props have been kicked out from underneath David. Everything has gone wrong. All the blessings seem to have been lost. And it is in these circumstances, King David says, Oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David is telling us that having lost every single thing that he has, the one thing that he longs for in that situation is what? God. The one thing. The most powerful man in Israel. Blessed beyond any of our imaginations. All of it gone. And the one thing that King David looks for is God. The one thing he wants, the one thing he desires, the one thing above everything else is God. Now, think about that. Think about that. We need to think about that. If we had lost everything, everything, what is the one thing we would want? If everything was taken away, all the seeming blessings that we have, all the relationships that we have, everything was taken away, what would we want? It really tells a lot about a person, how they respond in this kind of situation. John Calvin says this. He says, there are some people who are religious on the exterior 
but they lack a true knowledge, a true saving knowledge of God. And the closer they are to religious ceremonies, the more spiritual they feel. And the more they seem to long after God, but remove them from those religious ceremonies and their zeal for God vanishes. And then he points out this. Look at David. David has been separated from Jerusalem. All the religious ceremonies gone. And his heart longs for God. See, this is a, 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 it's a testimony to the reality of the grace of God in David's life. He longs to know God. He wants God. You see, note the very first words in the psalm. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. This personal relationship that David has with God, that's what he desires more than anything. Everything else can be taken away. This obviously is a, it's a reminder, it's a throwback to the covenant promises with God from the Old Testament. I will be their God and they will be my people. David says here, I, I, you are my God. I want you. Lord, you are my God. So the question remains, if everything was to be stripped back, what would you and I desire most? It's really hard for us to put ourselves in that position. We don't know what that's like. We, we, do, we don't know. We don't know what it's like to have everything taken away from us. Every single thing that we can think of, every blessing that we've ever known, taken away, shattered, destroyed. And to be in that position and to know what you would want. My, my, my feeling is that for many of us, and I include myself in this, if we were in that position the first thing that we would think of and the first thing that we would want back is the things that we've lost. But what if? Put yourself in this position. What if Cornerstone Sunday gatherings were no longer a thing? What if your Insta-Christianity reels were taken away that you survive on? What if you couldn't listen to your favorite speaker online? What if you lost all your money and all your home and all your relationships? Just try. Just try to be there. What do you want in that situation? For David, the one thing that he longed for in that very situation was God himself. My soul thirsts for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Many things have been said about this psalm about, in the commentaries about this is a, a physical experience being communicated in a spiritual way about thirsting. Like none of us, and, and many, many of the commentaries talk about nobody in, in our Western world knowing what thirst actually means and, and, and and equivalenting, equivalenting that to, to the spiritual realities that we're, we're talking about this morning. But what we see here from King David is a thirst for God. Do we have that? 
especially in the context that we're talking about King David speaking this morning, when everything would be stripped away, everything taken away, all the props kicked out, what do we want? What do we want? You see, the question is, what are we after? What do we want? For David, David says he wants God. That's it. All I want is God. As I say, what if we lost everything, family, house, money, security, what would our response be? And he's asking us the same question this morning. He's he's posing that question to us this morning through the Scriptures. What do you want? Do you want God or do you want other stuff? We need to ask the questions this morning. What what does God want to teach me this morning? What does God want to show me this morning? What do I need to do to follow after God like King David? How do I respond to this? And see, that leads us to the very important question of what actually worship is. King David here is worshiping. In this experience, he is worshiping. Having lost everything, King David is worshiping. And what is worship? Well, well the commentator said this is what worship is all about. This is what worship is all about. You see, the reality is that everyone worships. Everyone, everyone in this room, and I know we're in church this morning, and so what you're going to say is, I worship God, and what I'm going to say is, we're worshiping God. But the reality is, everybody outside the building, everybody who doesn't go to our church this morning, everyone who will breathe today will worship something. That's just how we're made. Worship is this. This This is a really helpful definition. Worship is this. It's about saying, this person, this thing, this experience, this whatever, is what matters to me most. It's of highest value in my life. That's what we worship. Let me say that again. Worship is about saying, this person, this thing, this experience, this whatever, is what matters to me most. It is of highest value in my life. That thing may be this. One of these things, a relationship, a dream, a position, a status, something to own, a a name for yourself, a job, some kind of pleasure. It may be any of those things, but, but we can worship those things very, very easily. Whatever name you want to put on it is the thing that you have concluded in your own, in your own heart is of most value to you. Because what is of most value to you is what you worship. And as a result of that, worship fuels our actions. Worship fuels our actions. Worship becomes the driving force behind everything that we do. As I say, every person on the planet worships something. There will be a multitude of souls all over the globe this morning proclaiming with every breath what is worthy of their worship. Some of us will attend church this morning professing to worship the living God above all the other things. Others rarely who will darken the doors of a church or never go into the church, they might say that worship isn't really a part of their lives. They're wrong. They are worshiping something. 
I know for a fact, I, I know people, well, in, in Old Trafford, for example, in the football stadium Old Trafford, there is a, there is a sign saying MUFC is our religion. There's a big banner up in Old Trafford saying MUFC is our religion. Now, they, they've been bold enough to put it out there and just say it as it is. They are going to the temple to what? Worship. And they will sacrifice their finances, their families, their whole lives may be sacrificed to that idol and to go and worship in that temple. And I know, and, and you know as well, maybe people like that. That's, the, that's what they're worshiping. The reality is this. Everyone has an altar, and every altar has a throne. And whatever sits on the throne is what you're worshiping. Whatever sits on the throne is what you're worshiping. And so how do you know where and what you worship? It's easy, really. How do you know what you're worshiping? Follow the trail of your time, your affection, your energy, your finances, and your allegiance, and you will find what is on the altar. You will find what is on the throne. Follow the trail of your affection, your time, your affection, your energy, your money, and your allegiance, and you will find what is on the throne and what you are worshiping. And whatever is at the end of that trail is of most value to you. And it's what you worship. Now, not too many of us walk around and say, you know what, yeah, I'll, I worship all my possessions. Or I worship my job. Or I worship pleasure. Or I worship comfort. Or I worship whatever. Not too many of us walk around saying that. But follow the trail. The trail never, ever lies. It's just a reality. What you value most, what you worship, there will be a trail leading to it of your affections and your time and your finances and whatever else. Let me be as bold this morning to suggest a few of the most common idols that are worshipped in our context and in our culture. And let's be honest with ourselves this morning as we do so. Because for some of us, the reality is these things are on the throne. Not God. The reality is for some of us, these things are on the throne. Not God. One, comfort. In my opinion, which means very little, in my opinion, comfort is the biggest idol, the, the number one biggest idol in the West today. Follow the trail. Follow the trail. The majority of our money, our time, our general resources are spent on what? Making our lives as comfortable as they can be. 
on my own. Comfort sits on the throne, not God. It is an idol that needs to be dethroned. Second, again, speak to me afterwards if you think I'm wrong in these things. These are just my opinion. These are not biblical. These are just my opinion. We're off. We're just John's opinion right now. So, idols that are, that are worshipped. Second, reputation. Reputation. Making a name for ourselves. Are we spending our time, our money, our resources, our whatever, building a reputation for ourselves? And this can be so easily disguised in, oh, I'm doing it for the Lord. No, you're not. I'm doing it for my name and my glory. Reputation can be an idol that is worshipped. Third, the one that no one likes. Children. Children. The idol that sits on many's a throne are children. Follow the trail. Time. Resources energy, whatever you want to put on it, children. Sit on the throne. They are to be worshipped. They are to be protected. They are to be whatever at all costs. Often, often, to the detriment of one, our own spiritual lives, and two, the spiritual life of the church. Three common idols, and those are just three, that are, in my opinion, idols of the Western world that have taken our affections off God and placed them on those things. We can say this, that we value this thing or that thing more than other, but here's the reality. And this is the case in every single thing, every single thing we do. And it's a common saying, and it's a cliche, and it's a cliche for a reason. But here's the thing. Actions speak louder than words. Actions speak louder than words. We worship what matters most to us. And for David, David is telling us here the thing that matters most to him, the thing that he wants most. He doesn't want the kingdom back doesn't even mention it, doesn't want his power back, doesn't want his rule back, doesn't want the wealth back, doesn't want the money back, doesn't want any of that, doesn't want his relationships back, wants none of it back, wants God. Wants, desires God. And his words are important for us. Because they express his thirst and should be our thirst for the living God. So the first thing we see here, that's, 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 it. that's the first thing we see, is a thirst and a desire for God and God alone. But the second thing we see is this. Not only does he, does he desire God, 
you know, want God. That's the only thing he wants. Not only is that the case, but also he is satisfied in God alone. Satisfied in God alone. He doesn't just thirst for the living God, but David tells us in verse 5 through 8 that he is satisfied in the living God. He enjoys God. God is the thing that he treasures. Let me read these verses for us. Verse 5, my soul will be satisfied as with rich food, with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you and with joyful lips. William Guthrie said this, it's the experience of the Christian to be able to say of Christ, less would not satisfy, more is not desired. You get that? Let me say it again. William Guthrie says this, the Christian is to be able to say of Christ, lest would not satisfy. That means it's all there in him. More is not desired. That means it's all there in him. He is our satisfaction. There's a story told of the Welsh revival. I I'm not good with history, so I don't know the dates. But there's, the story of the Welsh revival was when, when God gloriously touched the south of Wales, back whenever it was, and thousands of people came to Christ. There was, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones tells the story of they would, some of the preachers at the time would go in and, and they would say to the people, we, we really don't understand what's happening here. God's just moving. You know, what, what, do, you want us to, what do you want us to preach on? And the answer resoundingly was this. Just give us God. That's what the Holy Spirit does. It creates a thirst and it gives us satisfaction in God alone. John Piper says, this is the authenticating inner essence of worship. The inner essence of worship is to be satisfied in Christ and with Christ, to cherish Christ and to treasure Christ. He says that's what true worship is. And so let me ask you, are you satisfied in Jesus? Do you thirst for Jesus and are you satisfied in him? Or are you continually looking for more? Folks, the story of much of the Western church is that today. Continually looking for more. Christ is enough. He always will be enough. He always has been enough. Christ is enough. The Christian thirsts for God, longs for God. He is satisfied in God. He enjoys God. I, I quote it, you are sick of me quoting it, the, the first question of the Shorter Catechism. It just brings out the, the real Presbyterian back there somewhere, way deep down. Uh, but what's man's chief end? David gets it. David gets it. <laughs> just so that you know, David was around before the Catechism just so that we're clear. Uh, 
David understands it though. What's man see then? To glorify God and what? Enjoy him forever. Are you enjoying God? Are you enjoying God? Like, I know this is a weird question to ask you because you're here, but do you enjoy this or do you thole it? Are you here because you feel you need to be here? Or do you enjoy it? Do you enjoy worshiping? Do you enjoy reading the scriptures? Do you enjoy spending time with Christ on your own? Do you enjoy him and all that he is? Are you satisfied in him and in him alone? One, there's a thirst. Two, there's a satisfaction. And three, there is a rejoicing. A rejoicing. Hard to believe, really, in these circumstances. There's joy. Like, again, all the props have been kicked out, all the. It's a disaster. And here we find King David rejoicing. Behold, your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. My li- in, in the darkest of circumstances, in, in the worst case scenario, my lips will praise you. He goes on to say in verse 9, But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down to the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the, to the power of the sword. They shall be the portion of jackals. And, and David doesn't know this. David can't know this. It's not in his remit to look down the road and see exactly what's going to happen to those who are oppressing him. It's not, in, it's not his. But what he's doing in that moment is that he is trusting God. And he's rejoicing in that. He knows God. He thirsts for God. He is satisfied in God. He rejoices in God and he trusts God to do what God will do. You'll only really worship God. We will only really worship God if we trust Him. We trust Him. And we only really trust God when we hand everything over to Him. So let me ask you, do you trust Him? When things go bad, do you trust Him? Or do you try and work it out yourself? Do you trust in your own plan? Do you trust in your own wisdom? Do you trust in someone else's plan? Do you trust in someone else's wisdom? Or do you trust in God? David here, in the worst circumstances of his life, trusts in God, which leads to worship. And he says... In these circumstances, in these circumstances, verse 11, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of the liars will be stopped. Do 
There is a thirst. There is a satisfaction. There is a rejoicing. And there is a trust. Which all lead to worship. As we conclude this morning, just think about those things. Do you want God? Do you want God? If everything was stripped away, everything taken from underneath you, all your blessings removed, do you want God? Are you satisfied in Him? Or do you want more? Do you want something else? You know, say it often. We say we don't lie, but we can stand here every Sunday and sing them, no problem. Christ is enough for me. Christ is... I'm not going to bless you with that. But is he? Is he enough for me? Is he, is he enough for me? That's all I can ask. Am I satisfied in him? Am I rejoicing in him? We question for you as we finish. We just a wee curveball. How's your own personal worship life? Not in here on a Sunday. Not at a gathering with other believers. Not on an event. Not at anything. Tomorrow, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, if you get a moment, or tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock, whatever your moment is, how's your own personal worship life? Are you worshiping Jesus? Are you praising Jesus outside of this? Because this is not enough. This will not sustain. This will not keep. David, removed from the ceremony, removed from the gathering, removed from all religious whatever, worships and praises. All of these things, all of this thirst, this desire, all of this satisfaction, all of this worshiping, all of the above are to terminate or to focus on one person. And that is the person of Christ Jesus. The Son is to be worshipped. All of our affections, all of our desires, all of our worship, all of our satisfaction are to, are to terminate on Him and come in Him. And He is able to do it all. He is able. I want to I want to ask you this morning. It's not this morning now, but it's still morning. I want to ask you this morning to go to Jesus. I want to ask you to go to Jesus. And I'm asking myself to go to Jesus. Because he is enough. And he will satisfy. 
and he will quell that thirst, and he will satisfy the hunger. We will celebrate communion in a moment. And there's so much symbolism in communion. So much is going on that half the time we don't see. Why, why do we think, why do we think that Jesus used the elements of bread and wine for communion? What do they represent? Yes, they represent a body broken, but they also represent a satisfaction, a heavenly manna, a heavenly bread that has been provided for us to what? Satisfy us. Just as God provided the manna in the desert for the, for the Israelites, He provides Christ for us so that we are satisfied in Him and in Him alone. Why do we think that, that the, the blood is, is shed? Yes, it's symbolism of our, of our sins taken away, but it's also symbolism of a, of a quelling the thirst that we have. We're all thirsty people. We're thirsting after something, and the blood of Jesus satisfies that thirst. Go to Jesus. Instead of running to streams that cannot quell that thirst. Empty cisterns. It's one of those times where I wish, I, this is one of those times where I wish I could remember song lyrics better than I can. Because I know in my head there's a song lyric that talks about empty cisterns somewhere. I can't remember it now. Go to Jesus. He's the one that satisfies the hunger. He's the one that quells the thirst. He's the one that we find all our joy and desires fulfilled. Look to Jesus this morning. Don't. Sometimes you just get to sit in, right? I'm not joking. Sometimes you just get to sit in on John preaching a sermon to John. All right? That's the reality. You just, like an audience... It's like, I'm preaching to me. Stop looking to things that do not satisfy. Stop it. Look to Jesus. One lyric to finish. And I thankfully can remember this one. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And all the things, all the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Look to Jesus. Let me pray first. Father, you have been so kind and so gracious and so compassionate in giving us your beautiful son. Forgive us, Father, for the times when we have spurned him, turned him away, not given him the place that he deserves in our lives. Forgive us. Forgive us for the times when our eyes have been, been taken to things that do not satisfy material possessions or whatever they might be. And we need your Spirit. Father, we need the person of the Holy Spirit to work in our lives a deep satisfaction, a deep trust, a deep 
joy in Christ. We need you. And we need the Spirit to do that. And so we pray for that today. Oh, that your Son may be glorified. It's in His name we pray. Amen.